and welcome to the Real Tech, Real Life podcast. A conversational medley with four women who've been there, done that, and lived to tell about it. We are very excited to have Chris Barbin with us today. He's a venture partner at GGV, an investor, an author, strategic advisor for growth companies as they as they look to scale and, and build healthy company cultures. Uh, but prior to wearing all those hats, he had an impressive career in, in the technology business, first at Granger, uh, and then later in senior roles at, at Borland and, and Web Methods, but most recently as a founder and CEO of Aperio, which was a, a pioneer in the cloud SI space. That's how we got to know him and also how we got to know each other. So this is going to be a fun session today. We've got, got lots of questions and we're, we're going to tag team this a bit as we go. I want to kick off and talk a little bit about your thoughts on leadership and culture. Aperio had a really unique and strong company culture, uh, so much so that it still lives on within the alumni network, which I think is a, a testament to uh, to how that was built. But culture is is at least initially forged from leadership and from leadership teams. So I guess I'd like to start with you asking you to describe your leadership philosophy and style. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It is so awesome to see all of your faces. Uh, to reconnect in this way is is pretty special. And uh, I think the alumni network is built uh, from the four of you in many, many ways. So thank you for that, too. Um, yeah, I guess, by, you know, by way of building a great culture or the culture of Aperio, I mean, I look at it as there's probably three big elements. Um, the first is trust. Uh, the, the four founders of Aperio, we had all worked together before. We had a very, very high level of trust amongst one another. You know, when we threw things over the fence, we knew they would get done. Um, we could back each other up in business, but also in our personal lives. And I think that, car- that carried through um, with our leadership style, with the management team, and just kind of how we built the business. So I'd say, you know, one is trust. Uh, right alongside that is just team, you know, team first. You know, frankly, even more uh, first or more of a priority than customers. And that's always a debatable thing. You know, are customers more important or your teams, your team more important? I think we were, we were a team first and that's a personal philosophy of mine. Um, and then the third is probably fun. Like I, I am a work hard, play hard kind of guy. Uh, I think at Perio we tried to have a lot of fun all the time. We, we brought that to our customers as well. Uh, you just spend way too much time working to not have fun. And, you know, it's that eight out of 10 scale that I always talk about or have talked about, you know, if you're not having fun, eight out of 10 days on a regular basis, something's wrong and you got to raise your voice. So uh, I'd say those are the kind of trust team and fun would be the the core pillars. Yeah. And so Chris, you um, certainly always kept our focus and attention on those, those pillars of culture. Um, As you reflect back in your career, like who or what do you think most influenced your philosophy on leadership and on culture? And have those ideas changed over time? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, So my career is roughly 25 years, half of which is a Perio, half is a handful of other uh, businesses, Granger, Web Methods, Borland, a company called Medicon. Um, a lot of the experiences at uh, my initial companies did shape the Aperio experience for sure. Um, you know, the alumni network is a great example where we, uh, at a prior company, we saw people, when people left, it was looked really down upon. Like you were leaving the family. How could you? And I always thought that was totally jacked. Like, like people are leaving to go do better things. You should celebrate that. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of other examples where 
you know, I was shaped or things were shaped by myself and Glenn and Mike and Narinder based on our prior experiences in that prior 10 to 15 years. Um, you know, I, I think so, those philosophies still exist for me today. I mean, my, and we'll maybe talk a little bit about this later, since leaving Aperio, I've shifted my focus more to, I mean, I have a history of enterprise B2B, and I've shifted my focus more to business to consumer SMB. And so I do have some different philosophies as a result of, you know, building a very small business in a small town that's consumer centric. So I think the B2B enterprise philosophies are one, but B2C small business, there's a whole different set of uh, paradigms there. Interesting. How, how would you describe those, those differences? Well, one is just um, the labor pool in call it small town America for a small business is very, very different than a you know knowledge worker in San Francisco. And um, things... I might say, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> things like corporate culture um, and teaming, the way I described it earlier, you know, it's, it's looked at very differently when something in a small business is, is a job. It's not a career and it's more transactional in many cases. Um, it's week to week. It's not thinking about what's my next big thing. And so, um, you know, you just, the different incentive structures, motivations, just what, what, uh, empowers people. There's just, there's a lot of different dynamics at play. It's, it's, it's opened my eyes in a lot of ways, actually. So, Chris, would you say, uh, would you have a different set of core values? I mean, do, does trust team first and fun still play into the culture that you're building with the non-tech side of the world that you're in right now? Um, would you, would, or are there new values that you've introduced in? Uh, we've introduced some new values. I mean, there's kind of multiple small businesses that I'm part of right now. Um, you know, whether that be the restaurant that we have in town here, the, you know, we have a tequila business that we're working on. I'm advising some smaller companies as well. And yeah, I, I think the values are, you know, they are unique to the company, to the space, to the size, to the maturity, to the leadership team. And so, you know, for each of them, I mean, I, I, gen I think trust is one of these basic fundamental You know, one of my favorite books, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, you know, the, the base of the pyramid is trust. Um, but there are other values that I think are, um, you know, more appropriate or applicable to different types of businesses. And of course, you won't be sitting and talking to a bunch of women without expecting this question. How <laughs> much do you think diversity plays a role in in culture? Like, is it is it a, is it a conscious thing? Um, and especially with all the you know, all the news and focus that has been uh, around this topic in the recent years. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, hugely important. Um, I guess I would say hugely important makes a massive difference, but also very hard to do. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been lucky enough is to join a handful of, um, of boards and looking at a couple of public boards to, to get boards and leadership teams properly diversified doesn't happen overnight. Uh, I think there's a lot of angst and, you know, why, why aren't there more women in leadership positions? Um, you know, that's a journey uh, that, that takes a while. And I'm not saying you, everyone should be patient, but I think an awareness of doing that right um, with the right people as opposed to just like, oh, let's just get a woman on our board. Like the right woman on the board matters. And there is a lot of pressure on organizations right now to diversify. 
both boards and leadership teams, but it's tough. It's tough. I mean, it's something obviously, I mean, I pushed very hard when, when we were acquired by Wipro, you know, not a highly diverse leadership team, management team, set of meetings, even board. Um, but there was a conscious plan and approach and strategy to try to diversify, but it takes a long time. Um, it's, a, it's a big shift to turn. Yeah, we, we actually did uh, a recording last uh, two weeks ago, I think, on uh, women in leadership, what it means. And I, I do think one of the things that actually gets in the way of it is when you do take uh, a woman and just you're just trying to hire a woman or put a woman on a board. Um, yeah. I think that actually, in, in a lot of ways, actually takes away. There are plenty of qualified people um, out there, but uh, I think that that's that definitely can be a negative. I mean, quick, quick story. I mean, it's yeah. I've been. I've been interested in taking on a number of board roles. So I've been proactively seeking them. And actually one of the things that's interesting for me is, and I feel like I'm highly qualified for some of these. We're looking for a woman. We're looking for a woman. Yeah. So like, but I couldn't like, I well, couldn't. Maybe if you shave the beard. I couldn't. I guess we're looking for a dude. I can't say that, but I get that all the time, um, which is interesting. Not to say, again, I think this is a big issue and, and um, you know, very top of mind for a lot of executives. Uh, but that's been an interesting uh, flip side of it for me. Personally. I'm sure. I, and there, I think there's a can be also a backlash from that as well. So um, yeah. this is something I think we all have to be aware of. You've obviously had a, a long career. And, and so I'm curious today, a lot of folks look to you as a leader. In fact, I was asked uh, several months ago what your leadership style was. And so I'll tell you what I said. Uh, obviously, trust, team, and fun you know, just flows out because I had to say that for nine years um, at every Imperial 101. <laughs> Uh, but I, <laughs> I said trust, transparency, big goals, and flip flops. That was my. Uh, <laughs> I love that. I love that. Great. <laughs> Actually, that you answer. know what? I just dug out my Aperio flip flops, and I've been wearing them. And Jonah keeps commenting on <laughs> how awesome. cool those are because they had the logo on the bottom. That's so they right. They make the imprint in the beach. Yes. So I have a last question here, um, then we'll, we'll go on and talk a little bit about the Aperio journey. But as I started with earlier, you've you've got a long history in, in technology and, and in building businesses. Who do you go to today for your mentorship and, and for, for really trying to hone those leadership skills? Yeah, I'd say it's, um, you know, over the years, it's morphed. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been enjoying, I, I wouldn't say... Um, it's not like some elder statesman that I go to and meet with once a quarter. You know, I, I get my, I'd say, um, release and advice and guidance from a lot of the work I'm doing with GGV, frankly. You know, the, it, I'm able to partner up with younger entrepreneurs, sometimes two and three time, or, you know, repeat entrepreneurs that are in the flow in, for, in a variety of industries, in many cases in China. And so for me, that there's a level of um, just diversity of thinking and approach. And, um, you know, I get to help them through some things and I have some pattern recognition. But at the same time, I'm learning about their businesses and their challenges. And again, skewing a little bit more in some cases to stuff that's business to consumer because I spent so much time in business to business um, and more SMB related stuff than um, than large enterprise. But uh, I, I'd say, I'm, you know, that's... Um, you know, there's a gentleman named Garrett Lord who has a really cool company called Handshake, and it's a rocket ship. Really, really neat company. And he is one of the most, you know, curious and inspirational CEOs I've ever met. I think he's in his mid-30s, guy out of Michigan, but, you know, his company is on fire. And he, um, and I'm learning from him 
Uh, and so there's others like that, but I would say that's more kind of where I'm drawing my, uh, where I'm getting mentorship in a different way than just like the, the elder statesman kind of way. That's great. So let's transition a bit and talk about Aperio. Um, the Aperio journey was a great one for all of us Mm -hmm. and that's how we got to know each other, how we got to know you. Uh, can you tell us how it started? Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty simple story. I mean, we, um, I was at a company called Borland Software. We uh, had d- just done a big acquisition. So we folded in a company called Segway Software, a testing company. I was had running services at the time, but I was complaining about how hard the integration of this company was. So I was basically bitching about IT. Um, the CEO at the time, Todd Nielsen, said, okay, well, then become the CIO and fix it. So I became CIO and through that journey, chose Salesforce as a platform to help us re-engineer our business. We did the first license of, of Salesforce for the entire company. That was and a big bet. That was, yeah, 2005, yeah. Force.com had just come out. We made a lot, you know, it was a big license deal. And, uh, but we kind of saw through that what this company, Salesforce, could become. We also saw that it would generate a fair bit of services. And so, you know, I always had a passion for, for professional services, but um, that was the real journey uh, or how things kicked off was as a customer, saw the market opportunity, highly encouraged by a few executives at Salesforce to do it, um, who gave us some really good guidance on where there were some holes in the market that we could uh, we could go fill. I want to know, when did you know that you wanted to form a company with the founders that you landed up being with for the next 10 plus years. I mean, it just must have been an interesting, I mean, like, when did you know it was them? Yeah, it kind of happened in two chunks. I mean, Narinder and I batted around the idea for a couple of days um, after attending a Salesforce event with Mark um, in San Francisco. And we just, we felt the buzz, the energy, and we kind of went back, put some things on paper. And then once we had a bit of structure, you know, we're to kind of run hard, big vision, risk it all, bet big riverboat gamblers. <laughs> we're like, wow, we probably need some people that are a little bit more conservative that can. <laughs> um, and that's when we went and both recruited Glenn and Mike, which you know took us a little bit of time to kind of convince them. But um, you know, we had previous work experience with them at a company called Web Methods. So we knew what they were all about. They knew us. We had a high level of trust already. And we were all kind of at a place where I wouldn't say we were mailing it in, but, you know, we were a little bit bored and we all aspired to do something bigger and different. And it all, it clicked. It clicked. How was it working with four founders and having that, you know, sort of co-leadership? And I know, you know, certainly all of us probably interviewed with all four of you for, (laughs) and that was the case for quite a while. So what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, most people would say that's crazy. Four founders, too many. How do you make decisions? I, I think you know the the thing that we did and we recognized very early was we all have to get on the same page with some of the core principles. You know, being being what are our core values? What are our respective roles? How are we going to make decisions? You know, what's the plan going to be? What kind of core processes are we going to have in place? So we did that very, very early. Uh, we would hold up and just go heads down, the four of us. But what worked in our in our favor was, you know, we had a we had a strong history of working together before, um, and that history kind of carried through to the trust, um, which we needed because we were in four cities too. We weren't like most startups where you're holed up in one small office. 
we were scattered across uh, across the country. So, um, but it, it was we were we were aware that having four of us could be a challenge, but we took steps early to kind of put the right guardrails in place to uh, um, to manage against that. And I, I mean, I, our first like big disagreement was we took down a deal at Dolby Labs. I'll never forget it. It was our first six figure deal. We, have we remember it. Yeah. <laughs> I think Andrea has a few wrinkles or red eyes from it. But yeah. It was my uh, first I mean, day at Aperio. Dolby Labs was the flagship. And, um, but it was our big, it was our first big, like we just had different perspectives on should we do it or not. We knew we were going to, you know, highly competitive. We were going to lose a lot of money. It was in the backyard of Salesforce, visible brand, Dreamforce is coming up. But we worked through that. And it was kind of the first time the four of us had tension, but we powered through, agree to disagree, let's take it on. And, you know, over the years, there were hundreds of those types of things. But uh, that was the first test of the, of the relationship. So I don't know that Andrea and I knew that there were folks among the founders who didn't think we should be doing it. So <laughs> probably well, once best we, we didn't. Once we commit, we're all in. That's right. <laughs> we did it. One face. Every acquisition we ever did was the same way, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Including some that we didn't, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you mentioned remote. Uh, you know, there's there's absolutely a tendency, I think, with startups and early stage companies to to want to get everybody all in one place. Uh, and and everybody all in one building. Aperio did an amazing job of building an organization with a largely remote workforce. Uh, certainly early on, it was almost all remote. What? How did you think about that? And, and what did you do to try to make sure that you kept the culture and kept everybody on the same page, despite the fact that we were rarely all in the same place? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, I, I give a tremendous amount of credit to Glenn, who obviously built a tremendous set of what I would say are world-class consumer grade systems for an enterprise business. And I think what worked in our favor was we, we started the business in four locations. We, we had to be collective or, or virtual and collaborative from day one. And all four of us embraced that. Um, that's, I think, you know, I actually talked to a lot of companies about that, that want to be more virtual. You know, if you have, people in the leadership team that aren't as supportive, that want everybody together, um, that don't want to invest in those mission critical consumer grade systems, uh, you know, don't force video and make sure that you are engaged and not multitasking doing seven. Like there's all those little things across the founding team where we're all unified and made, made that work. Um, and it was in our DNA from day one. It wasn't a, we were a physical culture. We're going to go virtual um, day one, that was the belief system. And a lot of that was driven off of, we just believe there was a lot of waste in big consulting in buildings, like seven, eight, 9% go into big, fancy glass buildings with giant conference rooms. What if you use that money and put it back in culture and people and processes and systems? Uh, so that was a belief from the beginning. For, for what it's worth, I actually think that contributed in a very positive way to, to being able to scale. Um, because, you know, so many companies get to a point where they're about 100, 200 people. For whatever reason, they have to go open another office. Suddenly, all their systems are built around them having to, you know, yell across the cubicles. Uh, and, and they can't function with somebody in another location. So I think um, while it was done out of necessity, I think my opinion is that it actually helped uh, a lot as, yeah. as we started to, to grow and, and move beyond yeah. that. 
Yeah, I mean, it forces the need to do things, um, you know, like the team meetings and having, having, you know, when you have the opportunity to get together at an annual meeting, you have to take advantage of those. Um, but I, I agree with you. I mean, the ability to scale, add more people. And, you know, it was a selling point for recruiting, you know, work it out of your house, you know, have great systems, great computer, blah, blah, blah. That's a very different dynamic than go to the office when you are here and you have to travel the other 80% of the time. What would you have done differently? Um, that's, I mean, I get this question a, a fair bit. I would say there's two very specific things. One, uh, less acquisitions. You know, we ended up doing seven acquisitions. Um, you know, I claim one, maybe two actually worked. Uh, the best one we ever did was the first one, which was info welders, 11 people tuck in. Um, we got some really great people from that deal. Uh, it was, you know, good economic deal on both sides. Um, you get, I call it the, you know, when you raise a lot of money, you get this burning hole in your pocket kind of thing. Like, Oh, we got to go spend it. Um, so let's go buy companies. And it's hard. Like we, we burned a lot of capital and um, a lot of calories trying to integrate acquisitions. Um, I think the uh, deal was a good deal for us, but it was hard. It was hard. We needed that capability. Could we have spent half the money and built that? Maybe. Um, and so I, I think, M&A is one of those private to private M&A is really, really hard. And I would have done that very differently. Um, the other thing is I would have grown more talent as opposed to higher uh, executive talent. I mean, I was terrible at bringing in executive talent. I mean, I made four or five really, really bad mistakes and um, would have been more thoughtful about how do we invest and grow people, continue to take bets as opposed to hire you know, the proven person on paper. But that is a board dynamic that, is now interesting for me on the other side. It's one of the few levers a board has with a leadership team to say, upgrade your leadership team. Right. Like that's like just one, it's a very tangible tool. And so you fall victim to that. Like, Oh shit, I better do it before the next board meeting or Gary's going to yell at me. Um, and so that was another thing we would have done differently. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, there's more, there's certainly more, but those are two big ones uh, in, yeah. in hindsight. I think one of the things, as I've spent the last couple of years after a period working uh, more of the startup scene and VC scene, I, I really have a, I guess, a unique appreciation for how you curated the Aperio board. And I'd love to know, did you did you consciously do that? Or is it just something that, that over time you thought, well, I, we have this hole and really want to plug in this type of VC and this person on the board? Or did you start the business understanding kind of what it meant to, to curate a board? Yeah, that's, um, I actually, this is one of those back to that mentor question. I had a mentor before I started a period. His name is Byron Denenberg, a Chicago guy, older gentleman who like the, he gave me a very specific piece of advice, which was, you know, be very thoughtful about your board. Try to have operators, not finance guys. Um, and on top of that, like take your time, like just take your time. And that is also one of those like, patience things. If you, if you look at our board in the end, um, our two independents, Jeff Epstein and Matt Thompson, you know, those were multi-year journeys to get them on the board. Like it, despite like pressure, like day we raised from Sequoia, they said, you need a lead independent. Um, we didn't add that for over two years. And so uh, I always, personally, I looked at it as I was an entrepreneur for a reason. I, I didn't want to work for anybody. Like I wanted to work for myself. 
So if I have to work for somebody, like I am going to really be careful about who I choose. I'm going to take my time. And because they become your boss, like I took all the risk, you know, we jumped off a cliff and and like now I got to work for somebody. I want to make sure they're cool. And the thing about taking your time, I think is once you start putting together a good, a really good group. And I think we had an awesome group that attracts really good people too. So like we would have never gotten, um, Gary had we not had Jim. Uh, and so like that feeds on each other, but the complimentary operators be patient. Um, you know, that was actually very specific advice I got before we even started a period. I also love the way you gave them quotas. That was awesome as well. (laughs) (laughs) I I share the BIR slide with uh, board influence revenue slide with lots of entrepreneurs. And I think I'm I'm largely hated by a lot of board members as a result of that. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. So was there ever a time that you didn't think that Aperio was going to succeed? Um, so there were very tense moments. Um, I tell this story sometimes, I think once we got to 10 million, which is after year two, I didn't think it wouldn't succeed. Um, like we had momentum, we were going, but there were certainly times where I didn't think we could max, we were going to maximize the outcome for our investors and for the team. So, you know, lots of bumps and bruises and twists and turns and, you know, some tough acquisitions. The worst, like the most dangerous part of the entire journey, and most people don't, we don't disclose this publicly very often, but was just before we raised the General Atlantic round, um, we raised the $60 million round. It was the biggest round we did, but we were approaching one month of payroll. Like, so we were running out of cash. We were growing very fast, but the fundraise process was taking a long time. We were without a CFO. And, you know, when you have 700 people on payroll and you've got a month of cash like that, that's one of those, like, I didn't sleep very much during the Imperial journey. Like that was, that was a long trip. Um, when you hit the refresh button on Silicon Valley Bank and you see the money finally hit, like, oh shit, now we can pay people again. That's good. <laughs> but that was pretty hard be a month off of payroll with 700 people. That was probably the most, for me personally, probably the most scary moment of the entire journey. Uh, but a good feeling when that money came in. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Let's tr- transition a little bit and start to talk about kind of what you're doing now. But uh, in, to do that, I'd love to know, was it hard to let go uh, when, when the acquisition took place? You know, you kind of sign on the dotted line or DocuSign, Lori, on Thank the you. dotted line. There you go. <laughs> um, actually, in this case, it was a hard sign. But anyway, um, was it hard to, I mean, you built your, your life into this company and was it hard to hand that, hand that over and then also start to think about what you might do next? Yeah, no, it was, um, it was definitely hard. I mean, the, the, um, speaking to the team on October 16th in Indianapolis, right when we announced it was probably one of the hardest professional things I ever had to do. Um, like it was a very emotional handoff, if you will. Um, having said that it was the right thing for the business and the investors at the time, you know, the market was shifting, our growth was slowing. Uh, the competitors were getting you know, snapped up. The buying universe, because of how much money we raised, was shrinking. There were less people. Um, and so we needed to do it. Uh, I 
you know, we had another offer that was from a company that was not that had values that would not have aligned. Um, I do think Wipro, you know, their their value system and you know, Mr. Primji and his philanthropic base, like that lined up well. You know, could we have executed it differently? Of course. I think that's just by definition integration is very very hard. So I don't regret the timing or the buyer um, doing it. Was it emotionally hard? Super hard. Super hard uh, to to you know it's half half of your professional career um, you know that you're handing over and I, I describe it because I've got three kids two going to college or off in college one about to go it is like sending your kid off to college you feel good about it like you've done everything you can and okay real world off off to the races the difference so, is you don't have to write the checks. <laughs> and that's that that part is resonating with the three of us actually on this call. Yeah. Uh, so that that does feel real. Yeah, that's kind of how I wrapped my brain around it. It's like, okay, Aperio's going off to college now. Okay. My kids were doing the thing. Doing that this weekend, and I'm scared to death. So ah, nice. <laughs> yeah. Off to Georgia. You're free. Off to Georgia. Enjoy yeah. your food. Well, I got one more and a dog right, so now. So how old are you? Uh, Twelve. Okay, so you got you got another five years, six years. Five. Yes, I do. Yes, yeah. I do. So enough time to pay for one and then start over again. Yeah, you get the full cycle. Yep. Well Can't planned, Andrea. Andrea, well planned. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what you're up to now. And I know you're a, a, a venture partner with GGV. Yeah. I guess start there. What does that mean? Yeah. So. Um, Venture partner or EIR, some firms call it, you know, it, it's a little bit different depending on the firm you're with. In the case of GGV, which you know, they're um, a 20-year-old fund or firm, seven funds. The last fund is about a $2 billion fund. Uh, I'm the first venture partner in the United States. There are two in China. Uh, my role is largely on the operating side. So there are, you know, I think kind of 50, 60 investments that get made every year. Um, I'm helping a handful of those investments be made if it's relevant to call it cloud or enterprise software, but I more focus on the operating side where I'll partner up with CEOs in the portfolio that want help, that need help on SI partnerships, building corporate culture, remote office locations, uh, board management, board composition, all the stuff we're talking about is what I end up doing for the portfolio CEOs. Um, like so, next week actually we're gonna we're doing a summit. Uh, there's eight CEOs, three days, and we're kind of talking about a bunch of kind of chunky, meaty issues. Uh, and I'm facilitating that. So that's and, I, and that's for me about twenty percent of my time uh, that I'm that I'm dedicating to that right now. So Chris, is this like a full time job? I mean, like you're telling me you're not traveling much. You've been you know by the lake as long as you have. Is it a full time gig or is this just like yeah. one of those dream jobs that you kind of have on the side when you go when you go you go in when you want, pull yeah. back when you don't? It is it is a bit of a dream job. I mean, the way it was positioned, it, you know, it's it's as little or as much time as I would like to give it. The summer, <laughs> I've I didn't really get a summer. We were still transitioning period last year. This was my first. I wanted to take a summer. Uh, and so I didn't, I haven't really traveled this summer, but I am still supporting um, GGV remotely and a couple trips here and there. Uh, so it's roughly 20% of my time. I mean, I am filling the balance of my time. Or I call it grazing. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm grazing on board roles, advisory roles, um, the couple small businesses that I referred to. But my hope is once my youngest, uh, who's got two more years um, before he goes to college, 
is to do it again, like build an, I don't know if it's another Aperio, but I certainly feel like I've got one more run in me and uh, I'm trying to figure out between here and there what space that will be in. So on that, I know that we're loosely connected again, which is exciting. I know you've been advising uh, Traction on Demand, where I've been for about a year and a half now, and uh, working some with Greg Malpass, our CEO, and I believe joined the board recently this year. That's right. right. Uh, So my question there, actually, very specifically, what drew you to Traction? Yeah. Now, so one, um, I love Greg. Um, He is, you know, quite the colorful personality. Uh, it's a nice business. Um, I love Vancouver as a city as well. So that was a bit of a draw, but I think the most, the thing that I'm most intrigued about is trying to help and be part of this, um, incubation of products from a services business. It's something we didn't do. And so I'm personally intrigued by trying to like, he's actually in traction is starting to figure out how to take products, spin them out and get them capitalized. And that's really, that's not an easy feat. And so that was a, so it's a combination of, I'd say, Greg and where they sit in the market with Salesforce right now, but incubating products and potentially helping even create a small uh, venture studio in Vancouver and helping him connect Vancouver to San Francisco, where I have a lot of relationships. That's where there's some, uh, some pretty cool synergy, we think. So I've, I've enjoyed it. And, and obviously, I mean, there's a great group of Aperio people already there, uh, <laughs> yourself included, you know, Mike Eppner, you know, I consider him a great personal friend and like him as a leader. So uh, very, very excited to help with that business. Yeah, no, we're definitely excited to have you. So, so what advice do you have for us then? I'm, I'm mainly been focused on the services side, obviously the Salesforce side, where do you see that market opportunity and what advice for me personally? And all yeah, I think, I think <laughs> office, I mean, I have a very strong opinion that I would continue to ride out the, what I call the mid market. So companies that are a billion to 5 billion, the draw as the company scales will be to go to a large enterprise. And then you're going to run straight into Accenture and Deloitte. I mean, Accenture, I've talked, I stay in touch with Paul Doherty, the CTO there. Accenture's Salesforce practice is $2 billion a year right now. Uh, I mean, just that's a crazy number. So uh, I, I think the big tension and, and thing to think about at, at Traction is just, can you continue to live in the mid-market, a, million, a billion to five billion, and build a great big business there uh, without getting distracted by the large enterprise, which is always the draw because those are the big deals, which you need to grow. So um, I'd say it's focus. And then continuing to be disciplined about the product piece um, you know, shared services and let the product feed the service. And I don't believe in that. Like I think very hard line, make it happen and push it out. So I think that will also be one of those, uh, as pressure comes in the system, um, it'll get hard because 50 million to a hundred million, those are, it's a big jump. And so that's one of the reasons why it's fun to be there because we've seen some of the, the pain points. And aren't they just so nice working in Canada? Isn't that very, crazy? Very. <laughs> but That's Vancouver. all we hear about. <laughs> How nice they are and that they use Windows machines. Oh yes, my goodness, yes. They're very nice people. Very nice. And the city is badass. Vancouver is awesome. I'm, I'm up there quite a bit. It's a great so. city. Was it hard to transition uh, to being on an outside board as opposed to kind of being, you know, on a board within your own company? Um, I would say that not, not, I mean, 
the hardest board I'm on, the most demanding is uh, up at Bates. So I joined the board where I went to college. And so I'm on the board of trustees there and on five committees. And that is run more like a public board that has a lot of governance and real demands. And, you know, we're in the middle of a big capital campaign. And so that one, while I love it and we're making really, really good progress, is probably the most demanding. Um, we have a great chairman that I've learned a lot from. Uh, the private to private, the private boards are, you know, frankly, they're more, you got to pick the right ones. I've probably talked to 15 different companies um, and I have this formula in terms of picking a board, but um, working with Greg has been, has been really, really great because he's, he's put together some other awesome board members that I didn't know that have real great experience and kind of extend my, my network. So you have, uh, in addition to all this other stuff, the uh, venture partner at GGV, um, different boards, but you also have a couple of, of SMB businesses and, and actually straight to consumer businesses. So tequila, uh, I think there's a brewery somewhere in there. Uh, there's definitely a restaurant. Uh, yeah. what, you, what, what do you look at right now when you invest, where are you looking to invest? Yeah, it's, um, well, there's the kind of the family businesses, if you will, which you've mentioned them. I mean, there's the tequila business, the restaurant, the brewery. Um, you know, that's a different investment profile and a different, uh, I guess, set of motivations um, in each of those cases. The personal investments, um, you know, it's like it's like any other investor, I would say. You know, personally be passionate about the product. Like, what are they doing? Do you love the entrepreneur? Um, and so I'm making – so those are kind of the two big drivers for me. And, you know, do you, do you believe in the business? Um so I'm making, uh, I'd say, a, a handful of smaller bets. But a filter for me is like, I want to personally be involved. Like, it's not just throw the money and then, you know, wait for a check five years later. Like, I want to personally personally have some set. Not micromanage, but I want to have, I want to be able to be helpful. So the impact, um, I, I want to be an impactful investor for them. Like, can I add something to the table is a, is a criteria for me as well. We're kind of running up towards the top of the hour here. So we'll transition into some final questions. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, would love to know, what do you do for fun? Um, because, you know, fun is one of your leadership criteria. That is true. So, I mean, I'd say the most enjoyable thing that we're, we, we're spending a lot of time up at a little lake in Wisconsin. And um, probably the thing we'd spend the most time doing for fun up here is surfing. So uh, we have a wake surf boat. Um, the whole family's gotten pretty good this year. Lori, uh, uh, has gotten very good and she can drive me now, which I feel really good about because then I don't have to just always be towing everybody. But uh, I'd say wake surfing is probably high on the list. Uh, we did form a little um, uh, side-by-side UTV race team. So we've been doing that. We're racing in a Lucas Oil Series across the Midwest. So that's been uh, that's been fun. Fishing, some really good fishing up here. So those are, uh, I'd say those are, those are some of the basics. We love just being on the water, frankly. Uh, we up here, we probably host between 100 and 150 people um, over the course oh, wow. of the So, uh, do you make oh, them work in your restaurant? <laughs> last year we did actually. Uh, this year, it's I heard you more. had Ryan Dollar doing dishes. Is that true? We had Ryan Dollar doing dishes. Wayne Shadowway did dishes. Both their wives did them with them. Um, <laughs> we've done busing and serving, and uh, it's, uh, but we have a lot more under control this year. Last year it was just like, don't let the wheels come off. This year, it's actually doing okay. And, and you and Lori are basically in the same place now, right? I mean, you don't have the house in, in Pittsburgh and the house in, right. in Chicago. And yeah. I mean, that I, I can remember you guys talking about the year that was going to happen. I never thought that was actually going to come. Yeah, almost 10 years of uh, 
you know, not living really under the same roof. And so we were pretty scared about what would happen this summer. If we were going <laughs> we to survive actually living together. And we have so far. <laughs> so what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, I mean, I, 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 that's a gr- I love that question. I, I probably would have started, like, I would have gone the entrepreneurship route a little bit earlier than I did. Um, I'll never forget when we raised money from Sequoia, Don Valentine, like the father of Sequoia, he walked in the door and he looked at all of us. He said, you guys are so old. I'm like, <laughs> he's in his seventies at the time. Wow. <laughs> but that was the first thing he said when he walked into the room to, to close the deal. And so I do think um, we got a, a lot of benefit from some shared experiences, but I, I, I know that this is like what I've been meant to do is like to be a bit of a, entrepreneur and business builder and I love it and I would have probably gotten out of corporate world um, sooner uh, would be one and then I think you know even as an entrepreneur and and I think I did a decent job at this but I wish I would have just allocated more time to the kids during that journey Um, like make I did a decent job with the DNF do not schedule be with my kids but I still I still have regrets of missing lots of special times with them as we built the, as we built the company. So I would have told myself like, make sure you allocate even more time for that. Uh, get higher way ahead of your, you know, of your, you and your team and, you know, some more buffer, but that's, that's in looking back, um, if I would have known that I would have optimized for that a little bit more. It's interesting. You say that when you were talking about building a period, one of my thoughts was how young you guys were and that you all had young kids at the time. Yeah. I'm thinking that takes a lot of guts to make that jump at that point with a young family at home. Yeah. So, no, that was, that created a lot of pressure and tension and sacrifice and something that actually a lot of the younger, a lot of the younger founders that I talked to, like they are in similar situations, very, very young kids, you know, such workaholics, um, that's one of the topics we're covering next week is just work-life time management. Like what resources can you put around yourself and how can you better optimize your time, um, you know, to live a little bit while you're on this, you know, crazy journey. Yeah, it's also cool to see men in the workforce putting more focus around that today. We talked about that in our women topic and women in leadership topic. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's good to hear that. Yeah, no, honestly, like there, there was um, – Three of the eight CEOs raised that as a topic they wanted to talk about. I, one of the cool things I think you did was make people's family feel a part of the company as well. In fact, Lori, you want to will you tell the story again uh, until <laughs> last week? This is the sure. this is the best story. Yeah. So, um, so I was with Jonah. I was uh, on my phone and I got an email, a work email. And so I was doing that thing of not being fully present with him. I, I get the email and I had a reaction. And Jonah said, "Hey, mom, what's going on?" And he must have been. I don't know, eight at the time. He says, what's going on? And I said, oh, it's nothing. And he said, but mom, I'm a part of this family too. What's going on? I said, well, it's not family stuff. It's work stuff. He said, mom, I've had Nerf gun battles with Narendra and Chris. I'm a part of this company. Tell me what's going on. (laughs) And so I did. And he gave me great advice. So (laughs) Jonah is wise beyond his years for sure. (laughs) Wise beyond my years. (laughs) And he reminds me of (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And, and so Chris, Mia is in, Mia and Kate are both in school, in college, right? That's right. That's right. And Kate's yep. at Butler. And where's Mia? Kate's at Butler. She'll, she'll be a sophomore this year. And Mia's going to Illinois. Illinois. So yeah. what's your advice? 
for wow. those of us about to do that. Actually, my son yeah. got into Illinois. That was on our list, but we didn't choose that. And that is actually on, Yas- on Yasmin's list too. Interesting. Yeah, right. She, she loves it. Urbana Champagne, right? Is that? Yep, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, she got into both Madison, uh, Wisconsin, and Illinois. But mm-hmm. uh, which I, I actually thought she was going to lean in the Madison direction, but she had great visits down there and knew some people and some, you know, great uh, just just clicked in. We canceled our our trip because it was so far from every airport, so um, didn't yeah. end up going there. It's but. actually faster to go to Indianapolis and drive. Right, we looked at uh, everything. I know, but <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. So, what's your advice to those of us about to send our kids off, Lori and I, and Miriam next year? Um, don't visit them. Let them be themselves. <laughs> <laughs> They're going. Ours are going far away, so that's not a problem. Although my, so I um, actually joined the parent advisory council for Jonah's school. Uh, I think Jonah's College. thrilled about that, isn't he? Totally. Well, that's the thing. I ran it by him first and he goes, mom, as long as you're not in Burlington every week, <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> I'd say one, one practical piece of advice is uh, Amazon has some really good recurring care packages. You can send them. Can we know that? I love that. <laughs> All right. We always close out our, our podcast with a recommendation. So uh, do you have, I'll let you pick from any of these three, but either a podcast, a book, or a binge series. Uh, what, what would you recommend? A podcast, a book, or a binge series. Um, Please tell me a CEO like you actually does also binge uh, watching oh, on Netflix. <laughs> I'm a total, well, I mean, I, I'm just, I have one of the, I have the last Stranger Things episode oh, tonight, okay. uh, which I love, but that's not going to be a recommendation. I'm going to go a little off kilter here. Um, Rami Malek does a podcast called, oh. called blackout. Um, oh. It's, and I like him as an actor. I think he's awesome. And so uh, that's worth checking out. What's, what is it about? Just, it's a, it's a, it's fictitious. Uh, it's basically the entire country. Um, loses power uh, based on, I don't want to give too much away. So it's literally a blackout. It's a blackout, and he is a small town radio broadcaster, and um, he he is broadcasting on a on a station and trying to kind of calm calm the masses, if you will. That, that's a great recommendation. Um, yeah, uh, definitely pretty, different from someone we had passed. I like I like him again, but to have him in a podcast, not in a you know in a series, uh, is pretty neat. Hmm. Very good. Well, thanks so much for spending the time with us today. It's really great to to chat with you and, and get your insights. And we're about to launch the Mike Epner interview first, and then we'll oh, nice. follow with yours. So it's going to be a little bit of a, a dueling Imperio folk <laughs> uh, interview series there. But um, anyway, thanks for joining us. And uh, we will uh, hopefully catch up with you again soon. Sounds good. Really appreciate you guys having me. It's awesome seeing all your faces. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe on iTunes or on Podbean and to check out our website at www.realtechreallife.com.